1 Corinthians 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you would do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. 
Thank you, Josh, for reading so well. It's great. And um, if you're visiting amongst us and you've just landed here this Sunday, g'day, my name's Chris, and uh, we're, we're just at, right at the end of our series in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 9, so this is the chapter where we've landed in. That'll help explain it. Now, prob- we need everyone to have access to a Bible, so if you don't have a Bible, stick up your hand, and Mark, up the back, will, he'll, be, he'll be running around and deposit one in your lap. So just keep your hands up if you'd like a Bible. There you go, that would be great. And you'll see an outline of where we're going in the leaflet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, thank you so much that, that uh, we are formed by the gospel, the great news that, that when we were undeserving and naturally your enemies, you took that self-sacrificial step of love, you entered our world in the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us, his perfect life, Uh, so that we can be forgiven and and free from your judgment and reconciled with you. And we praise you, Father, for that. We ask that that gospel would infuse us, that we'd not only just understand it and believe it, we would live it. And help us as we enter into the Apostle Paul's brain now, as he sets an example of someone who lives out the gospel. Please, may this be transformative for us too. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, recently I heard from Simon Manchester, who's an Anglican minister in Sydney, something of the ministry of a man in his church who's the chaplain to the New South Wales state cricket team. So in answer to whether he received any free autographs from cricketers, the answer was no, though he could have used his position to that advantage. Asked if he received any free tickets to matches, no. No, he paid for his own entry from his own pocket. And if the team played interstate, he paid for his airfare himself. His policy was not to take any of the benefits that might have come to him through his ministry. The reason was so that none of the players or officials could pass off his hanging around as just being in it for the freebies. His aim was that the players would say, He's not here for what he can get out of us. He's here because he's got something he wants to give us. It's a brilliant illustration of the issue behind 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We have rights, yes. We're free to use them, yes. But we're also free not to use them for the sake of the gospel. And that's the shock of the chapter. As we'll see, Paul spends half of the chapter arguing for his rights And then you may have picked it up, he seems to do a backflip in verse 12 where he lays them aside. And we're left asking why, why indeed? Well, at the end of the whole section that we're covering, chapter 8 to chapter 11, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1, uh, he says, follow my example, follow my example. So Paul's writing this letter to the Christians in the church at Corinth. This was a church he founded, a church which knew him, which had spent time with him before he had to leave and go on and do other missionary work. Since having gone, it seems some doubts have arisen in the Corinthians' minds, and they're now asking questions of Paul. Why didn't Paul charge money for his ministry? You know, maybe he wasn't everything that he said he was. Perhaps because he knew he wasn't much at all. He wasn't anything. 
And also, why was he inconsistent in his behaviour? He behaves one way to one person when he's with the Jews, but he behaves differently with the Gentiles. He's pretty slippery. He's kind of like a spiritual chameleon. What's going on? Some in Corinth thought, we can't respect a guy like that. And they no longer took his authority seriously as an apostle. So there was, back then, as there has always been constant criticism of Paul, and perhaps you've picked it up today. Paul the sexist, Paul the bigot, Paul the homophobe. Here, Paul the chameleon. Well, similar blows against his authority have been sounding in Corinth. This chapter is a partial defence against those charges. He has to first of all explain that he is an apostle, genuinely, and he has rights. He does this carefully. I am an apostle, I could get payment if I wanted to, I am free, yet I choose not to get payment. That's what he's saying. And then he has to explain why he's flexible on ministry, why he makes changes to his lifestyle without changing the gospel. The paradox is set out in two verses. Verse one, where he says, am I not free? And then if you look at verse 19, he says, I make myself a slave to everyone. There's the paradox of the apostle. I'm free, yet I make myself a slave. Now, I wasn't here last week. We were, we were in Tasmania, but chapter 8 is all about freedom. Chapters 8 to 10 are all about freedom. The apostle has to explain to the Corinthians, there is a freedom which is childish. And that's the freedom which says, I'll do what I want. And then there's a freedom which is mature, and that says, I'm free to do what's best for the gospel. And that is Paul's freedom. This chapter focuses in particularly on freedom in regard to how we use our rights. And we're going to look at that under two headings. First of all, the right to receive, verses 1 to 12, and then the right to refuse. First of all, the right to receive. Now, it's important to explain Paul's right to receive because if the Corinthians take his free ministry as meaning that he is inferior, then they will dismiss his authority. Okay, so what happens if you dismiss the Apostle Paul? In 2 Corinthians, Paul will argue, if you dismiss the messenger, then you dismiss the message, and in dismissing the message, you, you dismiss the one who sent the message, who is the Lord Jesus himself. So to dismiss the Apostle Paul is to commit spiritual suicide. And the Corinthians are in danger of doing it. You might remember, if you were here last week, the Corinthians were not to ask, what's in it for me, but how can I love my weaker brother or sister? Well, the Apostle now is going to model not only how he thinks this question, but how he lives it. And there's the irony, because he's saying, can't you see that the way I live is for the other person. The very thing you're accusing me of is because I'm serving unbelievers. The very thing you're criticizing me for is sacrificial living, something that you should be doing as well. So there's irony here. And in chapter nine, verse one, Paul begins by setting out two proofs that he really is an apostle. First of all, he says, haven't I seen Jesus our Lord? Okay, this is his first proof. You might remember from Acts chapter one, when the 11 surviving apostles, because Judas had hung himself, they had to pick someone else, and part of the selection criteria for the replacement apostle 
was that they had to have seen the risen Jesus. Apostles have, have, have had to see the risen Jesus. Now, interestingly, Paul had not only seen the risen Jesus, he'd seen the exalted Jesus. He didn't just see Jesus like the other apostles in the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to heaven. Paul saw Jesus sitting at God's right hand when he was dramatically converted, you might remember, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. So Paul has seen the risen and exalted Jesus. That's the first proof he's an apostle. The second is in verse 1. He says, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? You know, you Corinthians who heard the gospel through me and have come to believe through me and received new life, you're proof that I'm God's servant, God's apostle, because, you know, you're Christians because of me, he said. And he says in verse 2, even if there are other people who don't agree about me, surely you would agree that I'm an apostle because you owe me your spiritual lives. So he's got a vertical reason, I saw Christ. He's got a horizontal reason, I ministered to you. And then in verses 3 to 6, he gives three rights that he's given up. Verse 4, I've got the right to food and drink. Verse 5, I've got the right, right to take a wife for me, uh, with me for company, like Peter and the other apostles do. Verse 6, I've got the right to be paid and not to have to work to support myself financially. So... Here's the apostle saying, I'm an apostle, I've got rights, but I've given up some basic rights, such as certain foods that might hinder the gospel, marriage that might hinder my travel, the right not to work, um, or not to be paid for my work. I'm a tent maker, you know, I support myself so that I don't have to ask you for anything. In other words, he's setting all this out, why? Because he wants the Corinthians to think again. It would be a little like, someone who was commenting on the ministry of Arthur and Tammy Davis, who are our link gospel workers doing student work over in Tanzania, right? Imagine people in Adelaide, little group saying, well, you know, they're, they're going there. That's, they're, they're out of selfishness, really. I mean, they've taken off. They've left their friends and family back here. We didn't ask them to do that. They've taken their children, and now they're just overdoing something that they want to do. Poor us. And it would be as if Arthur and Tammy got wind of that and then wrote back and said, look, haven't we the right to enjoy Adelaide's cafes just as you do? Haven't we got the right to a comfortable life in Adelaide? Haven't we got the right to, er to work and be paid a good wage? You know, think of what we might be doing back in Adelaide if we weren't here. Well, if they'd said that, we'd be forced to think again. And it's as if Paul's saying the same thing. He's wanting them to think again. He's not only telling them to think of the other person, he's modelling it in front of them. And then in verses 7 and following, he gives two reasons why he should be receiving pay. The first is the natural reason. He says even the lowest of labourers get paid. Take, for example, a soldier. Verse 7, he gets provided for or a person who plants a vineyard, they get to eat the grapes. Someone who tends sheep, they get to drink of the milk. So a worker deserves to get paid. The second reason is a scriptural reason, there in verse eight. He says, and doesn't the law say the same thing? And then he quotes from Deuteronomy 25, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out grain. And we think, oh, when you read that, he's talking about oxen, you know, where the oxen are chained to the, the thresher, um, 
So they're grinding the wheat as they go around, and he's saying, the verse is saying, shouldn't they have the muzzle taken off them so that from time to time in their work they can stop, eat some grain, and keep going? And we read that and think, that's talking about oxen. And Paul says, no, actually, actually, it's (laughs) the spiritual lesson is uh, that a spiritual worker should be supported. Don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out grain. And then he goes on to say in verse 13 that even people who work in the pagan temple are provided for in what they eat. And so verse 14, the second reason is the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Jesus taught it. Jesus said the worker deserves his wages. There you go. Now, I know that there are visitors here today. It's probably your worst nightmare to come to church where the preacher is preaching about money and it's the end of our financial appeal. Okay, Uh, I do want to say that this is the only reference in money in our series, right? But it's come up, so so you've hit the jackpot. Uh, Without labouring the point, there's two points of application, I think. The first is that Christians who have received much from the gospel are gospel supporters. Christians who have received much from the gospel are gospel supporters, So if you can show me someone who's been enriched by the news of what Jesus has done for them, and they know that they've been enriched by it, I'll show you someone who's keen to get get the gospel spread and who gives to enable it. That's just how it goes. Because when the message you see of sin sinks in and you realize, we realize that we're spiritually poor, we are bankrupt before God, and then God comes with his rich message of what he's He's done in sending and giving up the precious price of his own son to die for our sins on the cross so that we can be completely forgiven, so that we can be elevated from our bankruptcy to a position of high status and privilege where we are God's forgiven sons and daughters. And the, 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 the message of that spiritual richness sinks in, then you'll be motivated to give to support that message, the telling of that message. And so secondly, I want to say that to we regulars, that our giving, which we give every week or month, is a gauge of our appreciation of Jesus Christ. Our giving is a gauge of how much we appreciate Jesus Christ. Uh, This church has a wonderful history of massively generous support for gospel work uh, since its beginning. And uh, there are people here who've given not just to support this church, uh, sort of the wages of staff like myself, and our ministries um, and other church plants who've underwritten church plants across the Trinity network, but then give in addition to that, uh, to university ministry, uh, to our Bible college, to mission agencies, to aid agencies. This is gospel-hearted generosity. And for this, we praise God. And can I say, as I, who's someone who's dependent upon your generosity, uh, I want to thank you, but I also want to thank God because God is the giver That's who he is. He is a generous giver. Uh, He gives us the ministry. He gives us the message. He gives us his son. He gives us his spirit. He resources uh, the ministry through hearts that he changes to become like him, generous, because he's been generous to them. So we praise God. Um, And there are many people who reflect that likeness of their heavenly father who are generous. But not everyone, okay? Okay. Because as in Corinth, there are still 
some people who are not clear about putting aside money each pay cycle for support of gospel ministry. There are some people who are not organised and the church just gets the dregs, the leftovers. There are some people who give irregularly, even though the bills come in every month. Uh, there are some people who've received very generously, but they give very poorly. But if you have been enriched by the gospel, if you know you've been forgiven, if by God's grace you know you are in God's family and you appreciate the privilege of that, if you know that you have a Father in heaven who is interested in every second of your life and every cell of your body, and you know the Lord with whom you will share an inheritance which will one day outweigh the world, then you will say, I have been enriched beyond measure. You know, I've got so much more than I possibly deserve. This good news must be spread, and you will give, up, give to support it. Well, in the first half of the chapter, Paul has set out his right to receive support. He set out his proofs of his authority. He set out some rights that he's not taking. And then he's given some reasons as to why he's right to receive support, the right to receive. In the second section, he moves now to the reason to refuse. Look at verse 15. He says, I haven't used this right. Well, the second half of verse 12, but we did not use this right. What's Paul doing here? What's he talking about? He spent 14 verses explaining his right to receive and now he turns it around and he says, but don't give me anything, I've got a reason to refuse. Why is he doing that? Is he doing it because he wants to refuse them? No, he's doing it because he wants the Corinthians to think of other gospel workers so that those workers can be free to think of the people that they are trying to reach. It's a bit like um, Arthur and Tammy, if they were to write to their supporting churches, including us, or to CMS and say, look, we've got some things which we want you to think about for people like us who are on the field, things which would make our ministry much easier, A, B, and C, and D, and then says, but please don't do this for us because we're okay. But please do think about the other people out on the field so that those who work can be freed from thinking about money so that they can think exclusively about the work that they've got to do. Or it would be like a pastor saying to um, his leaders, his eldership, you need to make sure that all of our staff and all of our missionaries we support are paid for and looked after, but that need doesn't apply to me at the moment. All right? The ministry in my Twin Brothers Church in Sydney did this recently. He said, there wasn't enough money coming in. He said, I'll go without, make sure everyone else is paid. We don't need to just at the moment. So that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. And he, he says in verse 18, here's my reason for refusing payment, that in preaching the gospel, I can offer it free of charge. In other words, in his role as an apostle who's breaking new ground, who's evangelizing, who's spreading the good news, who's planting new churches in uncharted territory, he, um, he says, here's my reason for refusing payment. I want to offer it free of charge. I don't want any confusion of interests in the minds of those that I'm speaking to. He's got a grace message and he wants, therefore, it to come freely. And you see in verse 16, he does it because this ministry is not his own personal appointment. Okay, we've already talked about when Jesus stopped him in his tracks on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, 
Well, Paul alludes to this. He says, when I preach the gospel, I'm compelled to preach. You know, I didn't get up in the morning and decide to be an apostle and preach the gospel. Jesus sent me. He told me to go to the Gentiles. I've got a divine mission, a compulsion. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I was sent. Now, I want to put this very simply so that we know and understand what he's talking about. He took the gospel to Corinth to people who weren't Christians. And he preached without taking up a collection, no fundraising. Because the ministry to the unbeliever or the outsider should be completely uncluttered from financial appeal. It should be free message of grace, free ministry. You know, you don't pay for this message. This is why I think uh, I have a bone to pick with televangelists uh, who want to proclaim the gospel on television and then ask for money, for payment. That clutters the message. It's very difficult to look at that and think they're not in it. Um, you know, they're, sorry, they're only in it for what they can get out of it. Once a person believes the gospel and has become a Christian, they should then support ministry. Okay, so it's very simple. Ministry for the outsiders is free message, free ministry. Once you've become a receiver of the gospel, support the message, support the ministry. All right. Now, what do we do here? This is not a boast, it's an explanation. At our church, we do want times when people hear the gospel to be uncluttered by um, issues of payment. This is why our carol service is a free event. All right? At a time of the year when everything costs something, and it's a, sh it's a shock to be invited to a free top quality event. And the grace that comes to them in the invitation is an illustration of the free grace um, which God in Christ is offering people. Um, if I as a minister, if I do a funeral, if I speak at a conference, if I go overseas to train pastors, right, and someone slips me money to pay for that, it doesn't go into my pocket, it goes back to them, or if they insist, it goes to the church. But it doesn't go to me, why? I am generously paid a stipend, which is not a wage, wages you get for hours work. I'm not paid that, I'm paid a stipend, which is a living allowance. It's a very generous one. The idea is that I'm not to be so concerned about money that I then take other jobs on the side to supplement my meager income. It's the idea I'm paid so that I can do my job and more, okay? So I will say yes to other opportunities as they come up in addition to this work because I'm supported here, all right? So these are the principles which the Apostle Paul sets down simply and wonderfully and he does it in defense of himself against those who've questioned his apostolic ministry because he didn't seek payment for it. In defending himself, he's shown how his, his ministry as an apostle is an illustration of the gospel it, itself. Well, from verse 19 onwards, he answers the other charge against him, the charge of inconsistency. People had thought him a bit like this guy, Gumby, right? That little rubber man who bends to whenever pressure is put on him. To us, Paul can sound like that, you know, when he's with one group, he behaves one way. With his another group, he behaves another way. And it seems to us like he's committing the cardinal sin of our age that he might be accused of being inauthentic, right? Everyone wants to be authentic, to be truly them. 
It seems like Paul's slippery. He's just sort of moving between personalities. That would be a mistake. That would be a misjudgment of him because who he is is authentically someone in Christ. You see, he's not defined by what clothes he wears, by what food he eats, by whether he hangs out in the synagogue or the marketplace. All those things are secondary. He's not defined by the football team he supports, whether he supports Crows or, you know, poor Collingwood. Sorry, Collingwood supporters. But, you know, like he's, he's, he's beyond that. So if he was reaching out to, if he's a Crow supporter and reaching out to Collingwood people, well, you know, he'd happily just take off the scarf. That's not being an authentic because who he is is in Christ. And he's free on those secondary issues. And if wearing a crow scarf makes it more difficult for a Collingwood supporter hearing him talk about Jesus, he'll put on a Collingwood scarf. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So he's prepared to be flexible on things that are culturally flexible. He's not prepared to be flexible on things that are sinful. And he's not prepared to be flexible on changing the message. But in the way in which he speaks the message, in what he wears, in what he eats, in where he goes, he's prepared to be flexible. Okay, that he might save some. So to the Jews, thank you, Gumby. Thank you. To the Jews, he said, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. So Paul met them on, his own, on their own turf, in the synagogues. He'd argue from their scriptures, proving to them from their scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. He spoke their language to win them. To those under the law, he said, though I'm not under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. What does that mean? In Jerusalem, Paul willingly paid for himself and four others to have their heads shaved as part of a Jewish vow to prove that he wasn't anti-Jewish. In fact, when he took Timothy, his um, sort of missionary companion, he was from a Greek background, he took Timothy with him and he went to a Jewish place. He had Timothy circumcised, <laughs> though he was free on this issue, but he thought, well, it's important for them to listen. So, Timothy, guess what? Whoo! <laughs> Big cost, but he, he was flexible. Well, I mean, Timothy had to be as well, didn't he? <laughs> in other words, he was fixed in his goal of winning and saving people. He was flexible in his method. He'd accommodate himself to his target group. He might have seemed like a chameleon, changing his suit, changing to suit the environment, but he wasn't. You see, chameleons, what do they do? They blend in completely so as to be indistinguishable. Paul blended in. He accommodated himself, yes, but he wasn't indistinguishable. He only blended in so far as to what, as to, as to make sure that what could stand out was the message of Christ. So we have to ask, you know, as a Christian, if you're a Christian, uh, do you, do I, do we stand out? Or do we blend completely in? Do we accommodate ourselves so much to our culture that Christ is never seen? Or do we accommodate ourselves so that Christ will be more clearly seen. I think this is hard to get right. It's something we could talk with each other afterwards about. How do we go beyond our comfort zone to accommodate ourselves to others so that Jesus will shine through us? The most extreme example that Narelle and I have faced of this was 
uh, some years back when our daughter Lillian um, was six years old at Black Forest Primary School and she developed a friend at school, Nilifa, who was from Afghanistan. Nilifa's family had fled Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, when the Taliban moved in. They'd spent three years in a Pakistani refugee camp before they ended up in Adelaide and at Black Forest Primary School. Well, no one in the school talked to Nilifa or her family. But we were Christians and we decided to befriend them. So we invited them round to our house. Well, we, had to, we think they're Muslims. We had to find out where on earth in Adelaide does, is there a halal butcher and we had to search to find one, and then they came around for dinner um, and had our meat, and they said, oh, we just buy our food from Coles. <laughs> right. Anyway, so then they had us around to their place, and so they, had this, they lived in this tiny, tiny little um, you know, housing commission place with a sort of lounge room about this big, and in there, and it's not just their family and us, but um, they met Jose, the Peruvian astronomer at the park, so he's there with his wife and mother, who doesn't, who's Peruvian, who doesn't speak a word of English or Farsi, for that matter. So she's there. We come into this house and there's this massive big television screen, bigger than anything we've got, with these scantily clad Lebanese women sort of gyrating on the slopes of Lebanon or something or other, because they thought that we'd like to see that. And then, you know, okay, so it's sort of a bit out of my comfort zone here. So anyway, and then they all decide to get up and dance. This very small space with this going on, you know, and so they're all doing this. And, you know, Narelle and I are a bit out there, but, you know, this was out of our comfort zone, you know, but, you know, so there we are at Black Forest doing this, you know, with Jose and the Peruvians and the Lebanese thing going on. And the... Okay. We made them our friends. And we've been out of contact for a while, but last week Fareed rings up and says, I want to get back in contact. We need to talk again. He knows that we're Christians. We have an opening. But it took getting out of our comfort zone to get there. Well, finally, verses 24 to 27, because the Corinthians have lost the plot, they're in danger of losing the prize. Paul says, don't you know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? By prize, I don't think he means eternal life because that gift is not dependent upon our effectiveness in ministry. I think what Paul's talking about here is the prize, uh, the commendation that's given for faithfulness and effectiveness in how you've lived your life. You might remember those parables where Jesus talks about the master coming back and commending his servants. The apostle saying, I think you're in danger of running so crazily, you're not going to get any prize. You're in danger of boxing so stupidly, you punch the air, you're not going to win any trophy. Prizes are not given to the runner who leaves the tracks. Prizes are not given to the boxer who miss their misses their opponent. He said, you've got, to, you've got to run the race according to the rules. So if you're a Christian here and you've got no discipline or no concern to live by God's word, if you really don't want to do what God asks you to do, if you don't want to live for Christ, you are in for great disappointment. There's no rewards for you, no commendation. That's what Paul's saying. And that's why you and I need to think, if I've been given eternal life by God's grace and God has put me here for a certain amount of time in this world, I want to be useful and I want to be effective. What can I do? And when you've thought about what you do, you then make plans 
and then you action those plans. And that may involve disciplining yourself. He says in the last verse, I beat my body. It doesn't mean I'm a masochist into self-harm. It means it might cost me something to bring my body into the practice of the gospel, but that's what eternal life is about, living now. So here's Paul. He's given his right to receive and he's given his reason to refuse. And in chapter 11, verse 1, he then says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Because it cost Jesus in his body, of course, didn't it? Well, I want to say two quick things. The first is by way of comfort, the second by way of challenge. First, comfort. It's wonderful that the Apostle Paul is a reflection here of the God in whom we trust. That is, Paul had great authority as an apostle, and yet he made many sacrifices because he serves a God who has immense authority, but who made many sacrifices and who continues to think sacrificially about you and me. In other words, Jesus is not someone who died on a cross and wrote a check and says, I loved you and now I'm leaving you. The Lord Jesus Christ is someone who died on a cross and proved his love for you and who continues to love you with the same self-sacrificial concern. It's not easy for us to believe this because there are times when we think on a daily basis life should be much easier than it is and we wish everything could be changed in a minute but the Bible tells us that he who sacrificially loved us sacrificially loves us now and therefore we need to go on trusting and obeying and waiting because he loves us. So it's a comfort. Paul is like God, authority, who loves sacrificially. Secondly, by way of challenge, Paul challenges us that the forsaking of our rights for the sake of winning people must push us out of our comfort zones. And that is extremely challenging because if there's one unspoken right which we naturally imbibe from our culture, it's the thought that we always have a right to comfort And even though we know we're on the conveyor belt of time and it will come a time when we'll drop off the end because our bodies will stop working, all along the way we are thinking what we can do, what can we do to make ourselves comfortable. That's just the right, the natural right we assume. So I wonder, I wonder for me as well as for you, how often do we let ourselves get pushed out of our comfort zones for the sake of winning people? You know, there are different subcultures in the hills, aren't there? Different football teams, people who support. Well, how often are we flexible on cultural things, putting ourselves out of our comfort zone so as to better connect with other people for the sake of winning them? I find Paul's example extremely challenging. And here is the apostle challenging us still through his words. So if he was to write to each of us and said, I would like to pray for you in how you're running the gospel race, can you please write down on a bit of paper for me what your prayer needs are? What would you write? Um, Would there be any 
lists of any ways you're trying to extend yourself and get out of your comfort zone that you're asking for prayer support in, or would you have nothing to say? I find this very challenging. Paul says, I don't run aimlessly. I run for the gospel. And I'll give up my rights to do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the great example of the Apostle Paul. He understood freedom so well, freedom in Christ, and he understood the wondrous riches of the gospel so well that he laid aside his rights. So help us be prepared to do the same, that we may win some. In Jesus' name, amen.